All right, how we doing? We doing well? Good. Man, how could you not be with the weather? There's this thing out there called the sun. It's amazing. That's why I'm wearing my Hawaiian shirt today. All right? I'm just bringing spring in here, whether it's here or not, baby. All right? So we're going to have a good time today. If you got to open, uh, if you had a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter two. We're just teaching through the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans. And this is a letter, arguably the greatest letter that has ever been written and arguably, obviously the greatest letter that's ever been written that's in the Bible because it helps us understand the gospel and what the gospel is and what that means for us. And so if you've been here over the last several weeks, we've just been teaching through this letter. And especially if you're new today, I want to catch you up on something that in Romans chapter one, verse 16 and 17, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then in the very next verse in verse 18, he says also in it, the wrath of God is revealed. And so the good news about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us is revealed two things. It has revealed the righteousness of God, which that means how we're saved, but it also has revealed the wrath of God against sin, which shows us that we need to be saved. And so from uh, verse 18 of chapter one, all the way to verse 20 of chapter three, Paul is going to talk about the wrath of God. And so that is what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. And so especially if you're new today, I want you to kind of know where we're at and what we've been talking about. And the reason why this is so important is when we talk about the wrath of God, it's very simple. If you and I don't think that our sin is that big of a deal, then we won't think our Savior is that good. Let me say it to you like this. If we don't think that our sin is that bad, then we won't know how good our Savior is. And so Paul rightly turns to talk about wrath, even though this is a subject we don't like talking about that much, it's a subject that we need to talk about, and we're doing it for the next several weeks until we get to Easter, because in Easter, we'll be in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and then he'll get back to the righteousness of God. And so that'll be a great day, and you'll look forward to it and be an awesome Easter, because we'll celebrate what God did for us to alleviate this wrath against us. And so we're having this conversation, and I just want you to understand that, that even though it may not be fun, it is very helpful and necessary, all right? And so before we jump into the text, as always, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, thank you for who you are and for what you're doing. God, thank you for your word and how it applies to all of us, especially myself. Um, and so God, help me to preach it in a way that not only honors you, but, but helps us. Because God, we know that what helps us glorifies you. And so in this text, God, we see that. We see what glorifies you and we see what helps us. And what helps us is a right understanding of ourselves. And so God, I pray that you would help us all to hear it, to, to see it. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Because without your spirit, we have no chance. And so as we read your word today, God, I pray that you'll bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go to verse 11. Originally, I was going to go to verse 16, but I'm going to push that to next week. It doesn't necessarily mean the sermon's going to be shorter, so buckle in, all right? But um, what it does mean is just we're going to break up the chapter a little bit differently, and so the first 11 verses, he's going to set the stage for the next verses, and so next week, we'll go from verse 12 to verse 29 in the chapter, because he's going to explain kind of where we leave off today in verse 10 and 11. So let's look at verse 1, first of chapter 2. Paul says, therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, you need to understand something contextually. I say this often. Anytime a sentence starts with the word, therefore, you always ask yourself what question? What's 
What is it there for? Thank you for listening, all right? Jasper, talk back to me too, all right? The, the question is, what is it there for? And, and this is what always kind of amazes me when the, the people who put the chapter and verses there, because that wasn't there in the original text, they put it in later, I say that often. But when you start a chapter with the word therefore, then you don't understand what's going on with that chapter until you go back and read the last chapter. And in the last chapter of chapter one, Paul outlines the evidences of the fact that God gave them up, Paul says over and over. God gave them up, and then he says, they did this, they did this, they did this, they did this. And we talked about that last week if you were here. But then so interestingly, in chapter two, he changes it from they to you. And here's why. Paul was so brilliant in how he wrote this letter. In fact, I told you on the first week that Harvard Law used to make their incoming law students read the book or the letter to the Romans, not for its theological content, but to see how brilliantly Paul wrote it because Paul would anticipate what the objections would be to what he was saying. And so then he would start addressing those objections because he knew as you read it, you're like, oh, you're going to think this. So I'm going to answer that. And then you get right back into what he was saying. And so he argues brilliantly, and Harvard Law wanted their lawyers to understand, this is how you do it. And so what Paul's doing here in chapter two is he automatically understands the fact that the Jewish people would read the end of chapter one, and they would have this kind of thought. They would think, you're right, Paul. You tell those Gentiles that they're wrong. You tell them. Because Jewish people hated Gentile people. They saw them as less than, and therefore they saw themselves as more than. And the reason why we know it's Jewish people, because he's going to get into it in just a second, but we also know that in this phrase, oh man, that is a reference to a Jewish person, because it was a phrase that was commonly used in the first century. They would use it to refer to Jewish people. And so here's what he's thinking. He's already thinking that a religious person would read the list at the end of chapter one. And I don't know if you remember that list, but there was 21 things, everything from murder to strife to slander to gossip to disobedience to parents. He, would, he knew that religious people would read that list and think, you are right in telling them they are deserving of the wrath of God. But then Paul flips it on him. He goes, well, you, know, you don't know who they is? They is you. You are they. Now, most of us in here are not ethnically Jewish. Some of you might be. But what you could substitute for this phrase here, oh man, or a Jewish person, very simply today, you could substitute church person or religious person. And the thought process so often in churches is that the world out there we, we make up weird phrases like this one, is going to hell in a handbasket. I don't even know what that means, right? But we say it. And we start talking about the culture. We start talking about them. We start talking about the world. And what happens over time is we start feeling better about ourselves because we are not like them. And Paul anticipates that that's exactly what you would think. So he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Why? Because in judging them, you're passing judgment on yourself. Why? Because you practice the same things. You practice the same things. 
Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. Let's just be honest. Because the Bible, it seems like the Bible says two different things when it comes to judging. I mean, Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. And then here's Paul saying that you pass judgment on others, but yet you, the judge, do the very same things. And so you're bringing down condemnation on yourself. And that word there, condemn, is the same root word as the word there for judgment. It just has a Greek prefix uh, on it, which is kata, which means to bring down. And so he's saying in judging them, you're just bringing down judgment on yourself. Because if you're saying that what they're doing is wrong, then if you're doing the same things, then guess what? What you're doing is wrong. And so it can be confusing because there's places also that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, where he says, the spiritual man judges all things. In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, when he was dealing with the craziness of what was going on in the Corinthian church, he says, is there no one among you that can judge rightly? And then in, in his letters to First Timothy, or to Timothy in First and 2 Timothy, he tells him to rebuke, to judge, and to do it with wisdom. And so it seems to be that there is this conflicting view of the Bible that says we've got to judge right and wrong because there has to be a standard, but we're called not to pass judgment on others. So here's what I want you to see. The Bible is not saying that we can't judge or have a standard by which we judge right and wrong. We have to. Here's what the Bible is saying. Don't act like you yourself have kept the standard. I can say something is wrong, but it's all in how I say it. Look at what he says. He goes on here in verse two and three. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse three, do you suppose, O man, O religious person, O church person, O Jewish person, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Here's what Paul's getting at. Here's his argument. He's saying, listen, when you pass judgment on people and you're doing the very same things, do you think that you will somehow escape that? And so here's what Paul's getting at. It's all in your heart disposition towards the other person. And there's this thing in the Bible that Jesus railed against probably more than anything else. And it is so hard for church people to see, but it's called self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. The problem with religious people, and again, we'll get into this more next week because there's two categories that Paul's talking to here, Jewish people, Gentile people. You can just think religious people, irreligious people. The problem with religious people is it's harder for them to see their sin than it is for irreligious people. But pointing out the sins of others in such a way that it says, I'm better than you, is itself a sin. And that is self-righteous. In fact, I've got it here on the screen, the screen, the screen by a guy named John Stott, third service man, come on, by John Stott, who was a, was a rather famous Christian theologian in his uh, commentary on the book of Romans, the message of, uh, the message of Romans. He says this, listen to this. And I thought it was so good. That's why I put it on the screen. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people 
while the very same behavior seems not so near, not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. You want to know what he's saying here? You want to know what self-righteousness is? Self-righteousness is when I maximize the sins of others and minimize my own sins. And it's harder for religious people to see that in themselves because they have learned how to be good. And see, religious people think about the world in categories of good and bad. But that is not the categories the Bible uses. I say this often. The categories are dead and alive. And even though you may have watched Princess Bride, that's bad theology, but there are not levels of deadness, all right? It's not like kind of dead and sort of dead and like dead, dead. There's just dead. And there's two ways to be dead. You can be irreligious and dead, and you can be religious and dead. And here's what Paul's getting at. When you read the list of sins, do you automatically think of somebody else or do you think of yourself? It always amazes me when people come up afterwards and like, I got, this sermon is for so-and-so. And normally it's a spouse. Like, oh, my spouse needs to hear this sermon. My question always, I want to say it back, is like, well, was it for you? And so if we're in sermons doing the Christian elbow, right? Like, you need to be listening to this. That was a little weird. Let's be honest. All right. Um, without first saying, man, I need to be listening to this. Then that heart is, here's what's, here's what's so tough. That heart of self-righteousness and looking down your nose at somebody else may be the heart of somebody who is not saved. Because if we can so quickly point it out in somebody else and so slowly point it out in ourselves, then that might be the sign that we don't understand grace. And here's what's so interesting. Look at where Paul goes next in verse 4. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? One of the guys, one of our leaders pointed this out in the first message. He's like, here in all this talk about God's wrath, Paul busts out about God's kindness. Right in the middle of all that, he says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. What is he saying here? You know what he's saying? He is saying, listen, God is love. First John tells us that. So many places in the Bible tell us that. He is love. By his nature, he is love. And so what this means is by his nature, in his love, he is kind. He is forbearing. He is patient with you. He has to work himself up in anger. But love and kindness and forbearance, that's just naturally who he is. He gets way more joy out of being kind to you than being wrathful to you. And Paul's making the argument here that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Now, if you want to know what re repentance is, very simply, repentance is this. It's characterized, now listen to this, it's characterized by abandoning pagan or self-righteous dispositions for a new disposition characterized by trust in Jesus for salvation and love for others. 
So repentance very simply is this. I used to think this way. I used to act this way. But because God's kindness towards me forgave how I used to think and act, now I think this way and I act this way. So repentance very simply is a change in direction. And the change in direction comes from a change of heart. That's repentance. Now, here's the question. If God's kindness is what leads you and I to repentance, then why in the world do you think that our meanness will lead others to repentance? Did you catch that? If it's his kindness... His disposition, his attitude, his heart towards us is one of kindness. And that is meant, Paul says, to lead us to a change of heart and attitude and direction. Then why do we think that it'll be our meanness that'll turn somebody else's heart? So here's his argument. His argument is, you want to know how you know the grace of God has come to you? You extend grace to others. That's how you know. If you can extend grace to others, if you realize that God's kindness and grace and mercy to you has come to you because you are a sinner, if you understand that that has happened to you, then you understand there is no difference between you and anybody else who also needs God's grace. Because there was only one who was righteous, and that was Jesus. So there's Jesus and everybody else. All right? That's how it is. And so God is not going to measure us based upon our ability to be better than those around us. He's going to measure us against Jesus because only perfect people get into heaven. But you know what I learned? And I say this often, but I didn't grow up in church. And sometimes I think that was God's kindness to me. Because I, I spent most of my weekends playing sports with my friends or drag racing with my father while him and his buddies, you know, drag raced and drank beer. It's a bad combination, but we rednecks from East Texas. That's what we do. All right. So I spent most weekends there. And, and I joke about this, but when I first went to church, I didn't know people dressed up. I went wearing a, a, a rib tank top, right? Like, I didn't know. I didn't have a Bible, or for sure, I did not have one of those, like, super nice Christian Bible covers, you know? And so I didn't grow up going to church, but I got saved as a teenager, and when I got saved, I was, it was one of those things that was like, if, if there is a God in heaven, and if he sent his son to die for me, he loves, I've never been loved like that. And if he can forgive a wretch like me, that's some amazing grace. Because I know who I am. I know what I've done. And I'm so ashamed. I feel so guilty. If he can forgive that. And so when I got into church, I didn't know how to act, how to respond. So I'll never forget being in some early Sunday school classes, some early Bible studies. And we would talk about our sin. And so I just went off like, you know, this is what I thought and this is what I did. And people were like, ah! I was like, oh, I thought, I thought that 
I thought we were all saved by grace. And so I was just being straight with you. This is how I really thought this week. Yeah, I wanted to, I, I mean, uh, I wanted to hurt them. I wanted to whatever. And it was a mixed gender group. So maybe I should have backed it up a little bit, but I didn't learn that we got into groups and we talked about everybody else's sins. I didn't know that. And I'll never forget being in some of those conversations. I mean, that's when I learned how to gossip through a prayer request, right? I didn't know that. And here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm getting at. Because one of the greatest indictments on Christians is we don't extend the grace we've received. And Paul is assuming, presuming that religious people think this way. Why? Because he used to be a religious person. He knows how they think because he used to think that way. And he's automatically assuming that anytime there's a list of sins, A, we're going to grade them, and B, we're going to point it out in others faster than we are ourselves. And Paul's saying, that's a sign of an unrepentant heart. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now again, I'm just a good old boy from East Texas. I didn't even know what the word impenitent heart was. I didn't even know impenitent was a word. So I had to look it up and it literally means unrepentant. Unrepentant. Now remember we talked about repentance just a second ago. So here's unrepentance. Characterized by a refusal to abandon your pagan self-righteous disposition for a new disposition characterized by trust in Jesus for salvation and love for others. So repentance is characterized by a changing of disposition. Unrepentance or impenitence is characterized by a refusal to do so. And why do we refuse? We have a hard heart, he says. And one of the ways, church, so hear me, one of the ways we have a hard heart is we're judgmental. We pass judgment on others for doing the very same things that we're doing. And, and I got to be honest with you, this is what makes it so hard to preach. In Matthew chapter 23, go back and read it later. Jesus was talking about the Pharisees and he tells his disciples, he says, listen to them. They have the law, but don't watch them because they tell you what to do, but they themselves don't do it. They literally, he says this, they preach, but do not practice. Rut row, Scooby. <laughs> I preach. This is part of my calling and what I do. You know how hard it is to stand up here sometimes and to preach knowing that I practice the same things? And so as a pastor, what I have to do is I have to make sure that I'm not taking the word of God and just throwing it at you taking it and just throwing it at you, taking it and just throwing it at you. What I have to do is I have to take it and throw it at myself. Take it and throw it at myself. Take it and throw it at myself. 
And then out of that, then I can give it to you. So I don't want you to think that I'm up here, the Bible's here, you're out there, and so I'm coming at you through the Bible. That is not how this works. It works like this. The Bible's up here, and you and me, we out here. And we're looking at this, and we're saying, that's what it says. This is what, it, what, it, what he did. This is what it means. And so I want you to understand something. I always want to preach in such a way where I fully understand everything that I'm saying applies to me. And it applies to me first. Because the Bible says, so go the priests, so go the people. And what does it say about our churches if the type of Christians we're producing are judgmental, self-righteous ones? And so if judgment's gonna start, right? It's gotta first start with me and you before we talk about them now, now think about this. Pastoring and parenting are, are so intertwined. This is why the qualifications that Paul gives, and Peter as well, in the New Testament about those who can pastor, he bases it based upon how they lead their home. So what qualifies me to pastor you is not my seminary degree. What qualifies me to pastor you is my marriage and my family. How I lead my wife and how I lead my kids. That's the qualifications that Paul gave because there was no seminary back then. So he says, if he can't manage his own household well, how in the world can he manage the house of God? And so understanding as a father that how I parent my kids can be done in a way where I can just bring down judgment on them or I can bring kindness to them while at the same time remaining with a standard of truth. So, so here's what I'm saying. Pastoring and parenting are, are so similar. And so I can parent in a way where I just come down hard on my kids and hard on my kids and I'm judgmental towards their actions and their attitudes. And I can do it in such a way where I totally forget I used to be a teenager. I can do it in such a way where I treat them like they are the dumbest people on the planet and I'm the smartest and if they would just be more like me. I'll never forget after my son was born, you know, for the first like year or so, they're awesome and you think they're angels and they're beautiful. And then when they start talking and walking, you're like, those are dirty, wretched sinners, right? And so <laughs> you realize quickly and I'll never forget and, and trying to parent, and my, I got great kids, but in parenting my kids, I, I get so frustrated because here's what would happen invariably. I would tell them not to do something, and the moment that it was coming out of my mouth, the Holy Spirit's like, hey, what about you, sucker? You do the same thing? You ever done that? Like you're in the middle, like feeling so right and justified, and you're like, yeah, and then the God tells you, you do the same thing. You're like, Ugh. You know what I did when I realized how hard it was to parent? I called my mama. And you know what I told her? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, I know I was the third and I was the best, but I'm sorry, right? <laughs> and my mom, being gracious as she was, she didn't say, I told you so, right? She said, I understand. Because in trying to parent somebody else, I realize how hard it was to parent me. 
And so in, I can parent my kids in such a way where I just bring judgment down upon them, but here's what's gonna happen. If that's all I ever do, then I'm going to destroy a relationship. Because here's what happens. So often we try to win the argument instead of trying to win the person. Or I can parent my kids in such a way where I say, listen, man, I remember what it was like to be 15. You got desires, I had them too. You're gonna to struggle, I struggle too. There is right and wrong, but I'm here to help you, not condemn you. So I don't give up on parenting just because I was a bad kid. So in the same way, I don't give up on parent, uh, pastoring just because I too am a sinner. I just do it differently. So here's what I'm saying to you. As believers, what if our church, I can't control every other church on the planet because I just passed through this one, but what if our church had such a spirit about it where we not only knew that it was the kindness of God that saved us, but we extend that kindness to others? Right? And it's all in how you approach it. It's all in how you approach it. And, and I've had this. You've had this. You've had people that come to you, and all they do is point out all your flaws. All they do is point out all your failures. All they do is rail about you what you did wrong. And you're like, yeah, that's my marriage. Thanks, Pastor. I appreciate that. Right? And, and, and so they can come at you in such a way that makes you defensive. And then you're, you're a wicked, dirty sinner. And so naturally what you want to do is you're going to be like, well, oh yeah, well, you did this. And then you just got into counseling, right? <laughs> or you should have. But, but how would it be received? How, how would it be received if we were the kind of church where instead of we were so quick to point out the failures of others, we weren't trying to win an argument against them. We were trying to win them. And we, can, we come to them with kindness and patience and forbearance. That word forbearance means a good-natured tolerance that delays enforcing rights or claims or privileges. If we come to somebody we love and say, man, I love you. I am for you. I want the best for you. And I just don't think this is the best. And if you're willing to acknowledge that, I am willing to walk with you. See, if you come at somebody like that, they're going to be far more, or far less, I should say, defensive. Far more willing to receive it. You get what I'm saying? And that's how we want everybody to come to us, isn't it? But that's not how we come at everybody. And now that we're in this digital world that we're in, social media has just highlighted all of our bad impulses. People are like, it's social media. It is technology. No, it ain't. It's you. All social media did was reveal your hidden thoughts. Because you bought into this thing that I could just type it out there into the interwebs. Listen, Facebook is not your diary. 
And if you have a problem with somebody, don't be passive aggressive on Facebook and categorize all Christians. Just go talk to that person. You see what I'm saying? And, and Paul's getting at here. Listen, do you, do you presume on the kindness of God that you think he won't judge you by the same standard through which you have judged others? He goes on, look at verse six. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But look at verse eight and nine. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Again, remember when he's saying Jew and Greek, he's talking about for the religious one first and the irreligious one second. Judgment will start with those who claim to know God. And we will be judged, he says, according to our works. Now, here's where it can get a little bit confusing. Paul is not saying that we are saved by works. That's not what he's saying, because that would contradict everything else the Bible says. He is saying that's what we'll be judged on. And here is where the gospel comes in. He'll get into it later. We'll see the, in the rest of chapter two. But when you and I stand before God, we'll be judged on what we did. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, we will be judged for all of our works and we will deserve the wrath of God. But then in that moment, and I don't know if we'll speak up first or Jesus will speak up first, but we'll say, but, but I'm trusting in his works. I'm trusting in his works to save me. Grade me on his performance because he took my place on the cross. And then God will turn and judge us based upon his works. And he's perfect. So you and I will be judged on works. The difference for those who believe in Jesus are we'll be judged on his works. And here's why that should humble all of us. None of us are righteous. No, not one. So all of us need Jesus. The foot of the cross is level, my friends. And so if that's true, if I need Jesus and I'm going to be judged just like you're going to be judged, then why in the world would I have a judgmental attitude towards you? I can't. I need to have a judgmental attitude towards myself. And I need to judge myself twice as much as I judge you. Because I understand I don't have enough good works to stand before him either. Last two verses, verse 10 and 11. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. There are no favorites. God has one righteous son. And then billions of unrighteous children. So none of these will get any favoritism. He favors Jesus. But if you trust in his son, then you'll get the glory and honor and favoritism that is due Jesus.
And that's the good news. So my friends, if that is true, if that's true, then two things should be true about us. We should be trusting Jesus, understanding that it was our sins that held him on that cross. And two, we should be gracious to others, kind and patient to others so that they can see the grace in us that we've received from him. And my friends, if that can not only be our message at Revolution Church, but check this out. If that could be our method, that was good. That was some good pastor alliteration right there. <laughs> that could be our message and our method. Then Jesus will build that church and the gates of hell can't stop it. So very simply, response is twofold like it normally is. A, have you received that grace? Again, you won't know how good your savior is until you know how bad you need saving. So have you received that grace, man? And then two, are you extending that grace? Church, I want to have a church, to create a church, to lead a church where we are known for our love. Isn't that what Jesus prayed for? It never made sense to me that Christians were so quick to kill their wounded. Listen, I'm a sinner and I'm gonna need your grace and you're a sinner, and you're gonna need my grace, and both of us are gonna get that grace from the grace giver. And so let's be that kind of church that believes the best, that speaks the truth, yes, in love, and doesn't go talk to everybody else first, so that then when that person disagrees with what we're saying, we could say, well, everybody feels this way. Everybody? You mean you talk to other people about me before you talk to me? What if we were that kind of church that said, man, I love you so much. And I love you enough to tell you that this is wrong, but I love you enough to walk with you through it. Who don't wanna be a part of that kind of church? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us in Christ. None of us, none of us are righteous. All of us need Jesus to save us. And God, I know there are people listening right now that have not trusted in Jesus. And sadly, maybe the reason why they haven't come to Jesus is they haven't seen the good news lived out among those who profess Jesus. 
But God, I pray today when they've heard the good news that you'll open their eyes to see that they too need a savior. And I pray that you would save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close as always, if you've never trusted Jesus and you want to today, confess, repent, and trust, you'll be saved. And so I'm gonna lead you in a prayer simply of confession, which is just acknowledging. And if God has already opened your eyes to see that truth and now you respond in faith, you'll be saved. So if that's you, if you wanna trust Jesus right there where you are, you know, looking around or talking, but if you wanna trust Jesus, you can pray, not out loud, but with me and it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son to die in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me. Forgive me for what I've done wrong. I confess I need grace. Please save me. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed that for the first time, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. We got men and women walking around gonna put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. But then the rest of us, and especially those of us that have trusted Jesus, can we make a commitment today, myself included, that we will extend the same grace we've received. And it doesn't mean that we won't point out wrong, but we'll do it in such a way where it extends God's kindness and graciousness. And we'll be honest about our own sin. We'll act like we don't have any sin. And we'll love in the way that we've been loved. I know for me, this message has been so good and convicting, again, to remind me that that has got to be my disposition towards others because that was God's disposition towards me. Father, would you create this kind of church where we don't just preach the good news, we don't just preach the message that your kindness, that you are patient and forbearing with us, not wanting any of us to perish. That we wouldn't just preach that as a church, God, but we would practice it. Or we would be the kind of church where in our groups we can confess our sin. And in our groups we can agree to be accountable for one another, not just to one another where we say to those around us who are struggling, I am in this with you. God, there's not a one of us that deserves that. But since we received it, help us to give it and extend it. Because I know, God, that as you're creating that kind of church here, there are so many lost people that you want to save and 
be brought into this family. And we want them to know that there's no judgmentalness here because all of us need Jesus. So thank you for your word today. And God, I pray that you would not only bless the hearing of it, but you would produce the fruit of it in our life. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.